What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. We have a death cult alert. Fox so-called news talked about ivermectin 300 times and then ignored a new study on its ineffectiveness and also a deepening and frankly scary food crisis coming for the world. And why are Republicans blocking efforts to do something about it? We'll get into that also in this hour. Professor Richard Wolf is going to drop by about Deutsche Bank forecasting a recession for next year. But I want to start out with the threat to Medicare revealed. We have uh, had pieces of this conversation over the years. Let's check in with Alex Lawson, our old buddy and occasional fill-in host for me on this show. The, he's the executive director of Social Security Works, the website socialsecurityworks.org and strengthensocialsecurity.org. And uh, on Twitter, it's SSWorks, or A-Law202, as in Alex Lawson. Alex, welcome back to the program. Give us an update. First of all, I'm curious, whatever happened with Trump's efforts to uh, basically destroy Medicare by putting an anti-Medicare guy in charge of it, essentially? And where is Medicare at right now? And then going forward, what are the challenges to Medicare? Tom, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a complicated answer because what happened is from Trump to now, the industry forces haven't let up at all and unfortunately continue to just chip away at traditional Medicare. And, you know, there have been some places where we might have shut down some threats, but new threats are opened up by industry. They just won't stop coming to destroy our Medicare. Uh, and it's super insidious, as, as you are uh, one of the few who points out, uh, they're not going after it to just destroy Medicare. What they are doing is they're taking it over from the inside by privatizing Medicare, um, either through the back door with these uh, direct contracting entities that are renamed REACH entities, uh, and also just through the Medicare Advantage program. Uh, and the Biden administration just announced today uh, an 8.5% increase for next year to these Medicare Advantage plans, where these private insurers are right now, to, right now, record profits. So this is just taxpayer money going directly into the profits 
of these huge uh, private insurance companies. And as you know, Tom, they only make their money in one way, uh, denying care. And every time we look into it, if there's an IG report looking into it, what do they find? Wrongful denials of care. Uh, every time they look into it, MedPAC, which is the institution that looks over the accounting of them, what do they find just recently? We're overpaying Medicare. It is bank uh, Medicare Advantage. It is bankrupting traditional Medicare. So this uh, program continues unabated. And unfortunately, Tom, I'd say it's accelerating uh, its destruction of traditional Medicare from the inside. So uh, tell me about this reinvention of uh, direct uh, direct contracting entities, uh, the so-called DCEs. You know, I was going off on these things six months or a year ago uh, when I first learned about it. But now they, they, I th they've, they've figured out that people know about them. And so they're changing the name or is this a whole brand new program? What's what's the deal? Now, they got scared. I mean, uh, Tom, it's a it's a classic one. Unfortunately, you know what I say? You know, this is a program that was set up by uh, Kushner and his criminal cabal under the, the Trump administration. But when it was handed off to the uh, Biden administration, you know, we were out front calling for an end to it. Uh, and I first got the warning signs that this was going to be an accepted form of corruption uh, that we would be fighting for the long term, like Medicare Advantage. They first they just paused one part of the program and they tried to get us to accept that. Um, and we are, you know, we being the grassroots movement uh, against Medicare privatization, you know, we didn't accept that. And we said, no, you have to end uh, this direct contracting approach, which is nothing more than backdoor Medicare privatization. It's just moving people into a private system without them even saying that's okay. And what they came, what the administration came back with, and they wanted us to be okay with it. They said, you know, oh, well, we're going to transform it into this new program and it's got a new name. It's called Reach now. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately for them, we know policy and we looked at it and we we're saying this is the same thing. You can't allow private equity insurance middleman uh, into the system and expect anything other than what they have been doing uh, for over a decade now in Medicare Advantage. When you put someone in between the provider uh, and the patient, what they do is wrongfully deny care. Uh, so it doesn't matter what name uh, it's under. It's all one attack and it's continuing under the Biden administration. Now, do I think it rises to the level of the White House? I doubt it right now. Um, I think it's it's sitting lower in the bureaucracy. It's under uh, an agency called uh, CMMI which is under CMS, which is under HHS. And sort of the big thing in a bureaucracy is there's all these levels um, where decisions can be made. And industry is really astute at targeting these sort of middle bottom levels and taking over that part of it. Uh, and it often doesn't make its way all the way up to the White House. Um, but unfortunately for the administration, this is not a fight that people are going to just be OK with. You know, they're not going to lay off on this. This is Medicare privatization, Tom. This is the same thing that you and I have been talking about for literally years here. Yeah, so for it's just another wrinkle uh, in this in this fight of industry and Wall Street seeing a public program uh, and, and looking at it as a potential place to just extract money 
by hurting people. We're talking with Alex Larson, the executive director of socialsecurityworks.org. Alex, how, just for people who might have just tuned in in the last six months or so, you know, it's been a while since I've done a good in-depth rant about Medicare and Medicare Advantage. Um, and, and Medicare Advantage is on TV, you know, every single day, uh, you know, begging, hey, there's new Medicare Part C Advantage or Medicare Part C. They're not even calling it Medicare Advantage anymore. I know. People are realizing the Medicare Advantage is a scam, so now they're calling it Medicare Part C. Um, you know, this, this uh, in a big way, got transformed and emerged during George W. Bush's administration. And I think it was 2003 when he, he tried to privatized Social Security. That didn't work out all that well. Um, he said he was going to use his political capital from the Iraq war to privatize Social Security. But he did succeed in creating this privatization program for Medicare, Medicare Advantage. And now it's about half of all people who think they're on Medicare are actually on a private for-profit plan. They're not, they're not all for-profit, but the vast majority of them are. On one of these private for-profit plans, What's the downside of that? What happens to people when they get on Medicare Advantage that they probably aren't being told about when they call that toll-free number on TV? Uh, There's so many places to go uh, at that. The fact that they're on TV all the time recruiting people and only uh, selling, you know, what they see as uh, the positives of it. And they're not actually laying out the true costs. And most people, the vast majority of people, they don't know the difference between Medicare, Medicare Advantage, Part C. It's it's quite complicated, as you know. And so people think it's Medicare. But the truth is, it's actually just a private insurance company. United Health, you know, made $24 billion last year uh, and most in profits. And most of that money is coming now from uh, contracting with the government. It's from Medicare Advantage and some Medicaid uh, services. So this is the cash cow for the industry. And what does it mean? It means that when you're healthy, everything looks great. This is just like in the private insurance market before Medicare age, right? Most people feel okay about their health insurance right up until they need it, Tom. And that's the whole game. They know that 90% of people at any one time don't actually need uh, their health insurance. It's only 10% of the people who are engaged in it. Uh, And when people need their health care, that's when they find out that the profit model of corporate insurance is to deny care. So when you need it, that's when you don't get it. Uh, and that's a math. That's the exact opposite of traditional Medicare. Traditional Medicare is when you need a service, you get that service. Right. Um, so the difficulty is the oldest, the sickest, those who are most vulnerable in Medicare Advantage will find themselves denied the care that they need. Right. So uh, yeah, I mean, I'm on regular Medicare. I, I, you know, I've I've went through surgery. I've you know go to the doctor, all these kinds of things, and. And, you know, I don't have to pre-approve anything. Nothing has to be run by my insurance company. You just show up and you get the services. You check into the hospital. It's all paid for. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like magic. But I understand if I had signed up for a Medicare Advantage plan, pretty much everything I do would have to be run by the insurance company first. Is that right? Cool. 
Correct. The same way that most people have, uh, you know, experienced healthcare for their lives before Medicare, which is also right. part of the trick uh, that these insurers are are playing. Um, when uh, they looked into it, when the inspector general looked into these wrongful denials, Tom, mm -hmm. they found that over 90 percent of people who were wrongfully denied care did not submit, did not know they could submit and therefore did not submit a, a complaint saying, you know, hey, I was wrongfully denied care, which they would have been reversed, but they didn't know that that was a thing. So they were just denied care that they needed and thought, you know, oh, that's so the they way. just paid the six thousand dollar bill or whatever it is. Exactly. Um, or or went without care. You know, this yeah. is also a big problem. So it's a it's a really insidious system, Tom, but it is also uh, complicated on purpose because at its root, it's really simple. They can only make money by denying care. Right. So if you are covered, quote unquote, by them, uh, expect to be denied exactly at the moment when you need it. It's a, it's a, it's incredible. Alex, we just have 45 seconds to a hard break. Tell me what what can people do about this? Uh, is it lobbying? It's Javier Becerra is the HHS secretary, isn't he? If I'm, my memory serves me right. Yes, and uh, we have uh, a lot of organizing going on right now. We have uh, Senator Warren and we have uh, Pramila Jayapal in the House. We have a lot of champions who are focused on this. And Secretary Becerra has said that they need to stop these overpayments to Medicare Advantage. So we have a lot to work with. Even President Biden put a line in his budget about it. So we have a lot to work with, but we need to increase the volume coming from people. And so I think if you go to socialsecurityworks.org uh, and you connect with us uh, or whatever sort of organizing you do, make this something that you focus on. Uh, make protecting traditional Medicare a focus of your organizing, because as you said, it's, it's close to the tipping point of more than half of the system being private. Which is going to be hell on wheels if we ever try to do Medicare for all. Uh, exactly. which, I, which I think is plan, you know, is part two of their plan. Alex Lawson, the executive director, socialsecurityworks.org. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Tom. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's up? Yeah, well, one does have to wonder where the Republican Republican Party is. And I'm reminded that when Trump was president, other than the fact that he used executive orders to uh, basically uh, douse water on uh, the EPA and make it uh, gutless, the only real piece of legislation that he actually got passed was the, wait for it, $2 trillion tax cut. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. For rich and people. I have to say that that's basically the, the platform of Republicans every time they get in, in charge, no, no matter what kind of LGBTQ uh, baiting they do or uh, Mexican immigrant baiting they do. Uh, what they really want at the end of the day is to keep enriching the rich. So, and this goes beyond, I mean, I was going to bring up that, you know, you go back to Eisenhower and FDR and Truman and the 91% tax rate on, on the first dollar made over 400000 a year. That didn't make anybody with the last name Bush, Kennedy, Mellon, or DuPont broke. Right. They were all rich, and they remained rich, and, right. and they're still rich today. But they're not the super rich. They're not like Musk or 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 um, 
uh, Bezos or Zuckerberg of today's time, they're mere multi-millionaires, maybe low billionaires, but they're not multi-billionaires like these people that we have right now who want to spend their dollars going up in outer space for 10 minutes. So that's that's my rant is that I don't think they really do have a platform other than when they get in power and they're going to use all the baiting to get in power, to get uh, redneck white people to vote for them who aren't going to get one shred of that tax cut. But then when they get in power, that's what they're going to do. And they may talk about, you know, ending, I think they mentioned it yesterday, Biden and Obama. You know, uh, you know are they going to try that again? They're- and I think that was a good warning to people, vote in November, because you might lose your health care through yeah. the ACA. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Your, your turn, Tom. I mean, they're, they're, they're playing the old two Santa Claus trick. You know, it's like whenever Republicans are in power, they cut taxes to the point that they drive up the deficit. And then when def- Democrats come into power, they scream about the deficit and demand that Democrats cut spending. It's just that simple. And, you know, trying to make the Democrats shoot their Santa and, and they're, they're trying to be the tax cut Santa. And, uh, yeah, spot on. Very well said. Uh, Dennis, thanks a lot for the call. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Uh, What a day, huh? A lot of interesting stuff going on here. Let's see here. Gary in Kansas City, Kansas. Hey, Gary, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, in keeping with your theme of Republican uh, corruption, I wanted to list the four corrupt GOP economic messages today. Okay. I wanted to start out with number one. Republicans say billionaire corporations are blameless job creators, so we have to give them everything they want and make them people. 
But in fact, as we talked before on the program, the Kauffman Foundation study has shown that Fortune 500 corporations basically created no new net jobs over a 30-year period, I think ending around 2009 or 2010. So that's the first myth. The second myth that Republicans say is that slashing billionaire taxes helps the economy. But we found that slashing billionaire taxes from 1918 through 1929, slashing them from 77 to 24 percent created the Great Depression. We found that slashing billionaire taxes from 1945 through 1987, from 94 percent to 38 percent, caused the 1987 stock market crash. And we found that slashing billionaire taxes in 1983 through 2008, and also slashing capital gains taxes by in excess of a fourth, caused the 2008 Great Recession. So that's number two. Number three, Republicans say that government aid to the poor hurts the economy. But we all know that when a poor person gets a dollar of income, they have to spend almost every penny of that dollar just to survive, which then stimulates the economy. Every extra dollar we give to a billionaire is only, uh, they only spend a portion of that dollar. Yeah, most of it just goes in the money bin. That's right. And so they don't stimulate the economy. And the fourth big myth of Republican economics is Republicans say we can't increase the minimum wage because of inflation. But in fact, most of the current inflation is caused by corporations raising their prices to get rapacious profits. And that's causing inflation. And I think that as Democrats, if we go along with your theme of corruption, and then after we've made it simple, if we then on occasion can amplify the corruption by explaining some of the specifics, I think we can win some people to our side and perhaps have some real success in 2022. I think so. I I like your points, Gary, and, and I can't disagree with any of them. Um, I, I, I would add to it that, uh, you know, I mean, Republicans had this thing back in the 80s where they were elevating, they, they created job creators. I don't know if it's a Frank Luntzism or not, but it probably is. Um, that, you know, if you just give more money to rich people, they will, they will hire somebody. And, th- and that, there was that slogan, you know, I've never seen anybody hired by a poor person, which is, by the way, complete nonsense. I've hired lots of people when I was taking no salary whatsoever when I was building my own businesses. Um, and that's true of most small businesses. <laughs> most of them are not started by rich people. And, that's exactly right. And, 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 but they're not even bothering with those lies anymore, Gary. I mean, it's, right. it's been a long time since I've heard anybody talking about job creators. They've all, everybody's figured out that that's a scam. They've moved on now to saying that, uh, you know, they're the ones protecting our children from critical race theory and pedophiles. I mean, that, that's now their shtick. So, I, you know, it's, it's going to be tough selling economics, but I'm with you. Gary, you, you did a great, great summary of those your four points. I love it. You should turn it into an op-ed and, and, and push it out there and tweet it at me, and I'll retweet it. You know, ever since Ronald Reagan took a meat axe to education in the 1980s, you know, we, we really, you know, there, there are these moments in history, these kind of hinge points in history that, that are like before that and after that, right? Before 9-11, after 9-11, things were different. Well, the, the before Reagan, you could go to college if you could, you know, if you could get into the school, if you could pass the tests or your grades were good enough. 
you could go to college pretty much anywhere in the country. Yes, there were some, you know, Yale and Harvard were, were expensive, but, you know, most colleges, certainly state colleges and, and, and easily uh, community colleges, you could go to college and, and pay for it out of your pocket change, basically. Pay for it, you know, with a part-time job. After Reagan, that all changed. When Reagan came into office, about 20% of the cost of higher education was paid for by, the, by tuition, and about 80% was paid for by state, federal, and local governments. And, and in some cases, colleges having, having a, a buffer of their own, basically some sort of an endowment or other kind of program. A lot of these were created in the 1860s. In 1863, I think it was, or 64, when Abraham Lincoln created the land-grant college program, where, as president, he identified 56 large parcels of land in, in different states all over the country and gave those to the states and said, you know, use this land to create enough money to build a university that people can go to college for free. Now, in doing that, what Lincoln was doing was standing on the shoulders of what Jefferson did, uh, you know, after he left the White House, when he created the University of Virginia as the first free college in the United States. So, you know, obviously in both cases, there were some barriers to entry. But the point is that the idea that education is the foundational stuff, it's the foundational investment that we make in the intellectual infrastructure of our country, is solid. And those land-grant colleges that, that uh, Lincoln created back in the 1860s are still out there. You know, Michigan State University among them. I mean, there's a bunch of land-grant colleges. I, I believe there's still 56. There's a Google page devoted to them, in fact. So education before Reagan was easy. I mean, getting into college, you had to, you had to work. You know, when you went to high school, you had to get good grades. But getting in, you know, paying for college wasn't an issue. After Reagan, it became a ticket to the poorhouse. We have literally millions of, of Americans, and not just young Americans. I mean, there are people in their 60s with college debt. There are literally millions of Americans who can't afford to buy a house, can't afford to start a family, can't afford to, or you know, can't, can't even take the chance of starting their own small business which used to be the ticket to the American dream, right? Or one of the, one of the, one of the tickets to the American dream. Can't even do that because they have this massive student debt. Well, the law about student debt, it's called the Higher Education Act of 1965. This was passed when Lyndon Johnson was president. And section 432A of that law says, that the Secretary of Education, now in that case it would be Mark Michael Cardona, and it says that the Secretary of Education, and I'm, I'm reading from the law, quote, um, has the authority to modify loan terms and, in quote, enforce, pay, compromise, waive, or release any right, title, claim, lien, or demand, however acquired, including any equity of any or any right of redemption. And in other words, they can just wipe debt off the, off the books, student debt, federal, you know, federally issued student debt. And in fact, we did this last year. Joe Biden bragged about it in, uh, I believe it was in his 
State of the Union address. So I might be wrong, but he, I, I remember him talking about it, how they wiped $17 billion of student debt off the books. Just wiped it off the books. Now, the problem is $17 billion is about 1% of the total student debt. We've got a 1.7 1, 1 or $1.8 trillion student debt right now. But half of that student debt is federally financed and could be eliminated tomorrow morning. And there is a movement to do this. There's a group called the Debt Collective. And uh, yesterday, there was a huge uh, protest, a huge uh, demonstration in Washington, D.C. People came from all over the country for a day of action on student debt. They, they have named their, uh, their program Pick Up the Pen, Joe. In other words, pick up your pen and sign debt relief. You can do this by executive action. Or the, the Secretary of Labor you know, has the authority to do this, apparently, at least from my reading of this law. More than a thousand professors nationwide have endorsed this, uh, this demand. Biden, when he was running for president, President Biden, when he was running for president, made a campaign promise to eliminate $10,000 of student debt from all the federal loans. He has not fulfilled that yet. A lot of Democratic lawmakers in the Progressive Caucus, they're saying, how about $50,000 worth of student debt? Well, how about all of it? When, when my dad turned 17, World War, World War II was in its last days, but nobody knew it was his last days. And he, he got out of high school and, well, actually when he graduated from high school, he was 17, and he immediately joined the Army. As, you know, young men did back then, you know, going off to fight the Nazis and things. Now, by the time he got out of basic training, the war was over. And so they sent him over to Japan for two years where he basically ran the swimming pool at the officer's club and was a lifeguard. It was my dad's tough duty. But, uh, and, and uh, you know, and he had a good time. But when he came back, when he came back from the war, he got free college. He went, to, he, went to, he went to college for, for two and a half years. He finally dropped out because mom got pregnant with me and, and uh, you know, the, the, he needed an income. And so he got a job in a steel mill in Grand Rapids. But that's, that student loan program that was called the GI Bill that lasted until 1965. I'm not sure the education component of it lasted that long. It might've just been the uh, housing component. But, you know, it started in, as I recall, 1947, maybe 46, but I think it was 47. That, that program, for every $1, we now have the numbers. We can look back on this. There's no debate about this. For every $1 that the federal government spent educating people like my dad, or pro probably a better example, because my dad dropped out, better example would be Louise's dad. He also joined the military during World War II. He joined the Navy when he came back. He took the GI Bill and went to college and got his law degree. And he became the assistant attorney general for the state of Michigan. He was earning so much more money than he would have earned if he didn't have a college degree. So now we look at the numbers and we see that for every $1 that was invested in students like my dad and Louise's dad back in the 40s, 
we got back $7, we the country, we got $7 in added tax revenue through their lifetimes because they earned more and therefore they paid more in taxes. For every dollar we invested in the education of our young people, we got a $7 return. And that's just on the taxes. That doesn't count the fact that a lot of those people became scientists and invented things. I mean, the whole NASA thing, the whole the, 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 the dot-com revolution, every, all of this stuff, or much of this stuff, tracks back to the GI Bill. And this, you know, where, where America went from the majority of Americans having a high school diploma to a really significant minority of Americans or a much larger minority of Americans having a college diploma. It became the new standard. And we need to go back to that. And we can't go back to that if going to college means that for the next 30 years of your life, you're not gonna be able to start a family, buy a house, uh, start a business, do anything other than just you know labor in the trenches. And again, this is all caused by the corruption of the big bankers who are making a fortune on the private side of the student loans, which is another thing we have to do something about. Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson just got the final sign off by the United States Senate. She'll be on the court this summer. Back with your calls in a moment. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. NetSuite.com slash Hartman. That's NetSuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rob in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Hey, Rob, what's up? You don't like hey, socialism? Uh, no, absolutely not. It's never worked. Do so, you have an example that it's worked? Yeah, Social Security. No, 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 no. A country that has adopted socialism. Yeah, the United States of America. <laughs> far from it. Uh, you don't think Social Security is socialism? What do you think socialism is? No, 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 no. I'm not talking about a social program. I'm talking about a social model of government. Socialism. socialism. Communism. Oh, communism. Yeah. You're talking about communism. Okay, well, if you're talking about communism, I agree with you. 
You know, it didn't work in China. They, they've, they've, you know, flipped to a, a, a regulated form of capitalism. It, it, it's, you could argue it's not working in North Korea. It doesn't seem to be working out in Cuba. You know, the government is starting to crack down on dissidents. Yeah, I think that's self-evident. What about right? socialism? Well, socialism is, is where the government plays a role in providing a, a, a base, a foundation through which people don't fall and advocates for the interests of the average person. So you look at democratic socialist countries like most all of Europe and pretty much everybody's a member of a labor union. You can go to college for free. Your health care is free or the Socialist Republic of Canada where everybody has Medicare and it costs about $100 a month and it covers pretty much everything. Um, you know, or you look at the socialist programs in the United States, and Republicans have called them socialist ever since they were put into place. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, you know, uh, funding for our public schools, our socialist fire departments, our socialist police departments, and it works pretty good. Frankly, I think we need a little more of it. I think the exact opposite. The problem with socialism, as Margaret Thatcher pointed out, is eventually you run out of other people's money. No, you spend. don't. It's a glib statement. But the fact of the matter is that you've got rich people in this country who are, you know, pouring literally billions of dollars into their money bins, not keeping that money in circulation, not keeping the economy growing, and wanting to make sure that, that people don't have an opportunity in the United States to fulfill their own potential. That, that low-income people can't in go the to college. Has an that, opportunity. Yeah, in theory, Rob, in theory, but it's a whole lot easier if you're born white and middle class, or even better, if you're born white and rich. And that's, that's really what it comes down to. It's absolutely true. Rob, good try. Try again next week. But, you know, this whole thing about socialism, it's, it's like, come on. You, seriously, you think that the United States is going to become a communist country where government is going to take over all of the industry in the United States and, and you know, the government is going to be running Apple computer? Give me a break. I mean, I, I know that you're not that naive. I, I don't think any Americans are that naive. I, I realize that, you know, the right wing hate radio keeps pitching this like, oh, my God, this is another thing for you to be afraid of. But Americans are generally not that stupid. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Yesterday, I was listening to the New York Times podcast, their daily and they did a deep dive, and there have been a number of these published in various places that I've seen, a deep dive into the food crisis that the war in Ukraine is causing. And they pointed out in this, in this piece, and, and I'm presumably in the article that accompanies it, um, you know, I was listening to the podcast as I was walking home yesterday, but, but they point out in this piece that Ukraine and Russia account, uh, between the two of them, for about 12% of the world's calories that Ukraine is one of the largest food exporters in the world, as is Russia generally. And that as these, in particular, as the, Ukraine, the Ukrainian wheat fields are not being planted now as spring is arriving because Ukrainians are fleeing the country and, you know, Russians are blowing up their fields and things, that this is going to create major food shortages particularly in the Middle East and in Africa, although it's going to be happening all over the world. And you combine this with the fact that global warming has caused massive changes in weather patterns around the world that are reducing crop yields. In some cases, there was a, a, an amazing story about what's going on in Honduras that I, that I read just two, three days ago um, that pointed out that there's this, they call it the dry belt, 
and it stretches right across Central America. It goes through Honduras and Guatemala. And it's an area that had historically been rich, fertile farmland that was producing lots and lots of food. And they are in the midst of a 15 or 20 year drought now, just like we are here in the Pacific Northwest. We're, we're more than a decade into a drought and our forests are starting to catch on fire. It's happening farther south down in California. Well, it's happening all over the world. And in Honduras, the, the point of the article was that it's producing a refugee crisis for Honduras because these farmers, their farms are just turning into scrubland and they can't grow anything and they're losing their farms. But losing your farm, I mean, it was pretty bad and a food shortage is starting to happen now in Central America as a consequence of it regionally. And, and a lot of those refugees are showing up on our doorstep, by the way. And you know, if we want to do something about that, we need to be doing something about the food crisis in Central America rather than let's build another wall. But all around the world, this, this, is, this is going to get worse over the next 12 to 24 months, the next year or two. And by this fall, we're really going to see a bite. And by this winter, I, frankly, because Putin decided that he wanted to play Peter the Great and put the Russian Empire back together by seizing Ukraine, and probably Moldova, uh, you know, one of the leaked plans that we got out of, out of Russian intelligence was, you know, first we take Ukraine, then we take Moldova. And then they've got basically all the land that's not NATO. So because Putin decided that he was going to do this, now we're going to have this winter food shortages all around the world. It's going to be driving up the price of food around the world, which for those areas that are... Uh, right now, basically being fed by others. Eritrea, for example, parts of Yemen, parts of Sudan and southern Sudan, all around the world. But these are the places where the UN World Food Program right now is really, really struggling. They don't have enough money to buy enough food to, to, to feed these people. And, and, you know, millions of tons of grain are going to be taken off the market. Uh, Meredith Lee wrote a great uh, roundup on this for Politico, although it, it, uh, it lacks some of the detail that I found in the New York Times piece. But she points out that President Zelensky, when he spoke to the United Nations, he said that Moscow has, quote, provoked a global food crisis that could lead to famine in Africa, Asia, and other parts of the world, and large-scale political chaos in many countries. And that large-scale political chaos is something we should not be taking lightly. You'll recall the Arab Spring, which has now, you know, everybody was celebrating. Oh, yeah, all these Arab countries are becoming democracies. Look at this. It started in Tunisia with a street vendor setting himself on fire because the price of wheat had gone up. Well, why had the price of wheat gone up? The price of wheat went up because the desert is moving south in Tunisia and farmland is no longer producing wheat. And so the price of a commodity goes up. The guy sets himself on fire, says enough of this. The, the uh, ruling autocrat, the, the, oligarch, the oligarchy that was, that was running Tunisia collapses and a democratic government gets elected. Well, that seemed like a good thing at first. Egypt got more democratic at first. In Libya, you know, we, we helped take out Gaddafi, et cetera, et cetera. But now what's happened? Tunisia's democratically elected president just decided that he's going to dissolve parliament and be a dictator. Egypt is now being run by a military dictatorship. This is what happens. 
when countries are hit by crisis, and the crisis that we're having now with global warming and, and food shortages and, and uh, you know, forest fires and, and the drought and, and things are nothing compared to what's coming a year down the road, a year or two down the road. So we need to do something about this. And we need to do something about it soon. So President Biden announced that he, he wanted to uh, appropriate, he, he wanted to start with a billion dollars uh, for humanitarian assistance for those affected by the war in Ukraine. Now that's going to get a whole lot bigger down the road. So he puts this relatively small, you know, I mean, a billion dollars isn't chicken feed, um, but it, I mean, <laughs> actually, it literally probably is enough to buy chicken feed for the United States for a month or so, but who knows. But it, it's, uh, you know, it's not a lot of money for our, for our government, one, $1 billion. He puts this on the table and Republican lawmakers say, no, nah, we're not going to go along with that. As uh, Meredith Lee points out in Politico, uh, a small group of senators are trying to revive efforts to squeeze one to two billion in international funding, um, including some $200 million in global food aid. But the plan crumbled after Republicans demanded the Biden administration reverse a move to lift a Trump era deportation policy for migrants. Now, during, when Trump was president during the pandemic, he used Title 42, what's called Title 42. It's a public health order, um, which says those people from Mexico might be bringing COVID. We're, we're, we're worried about that, so we're going to keep them in Mexico. Well, we're, you know, the people from Mexico aren't bringing COVID anymore. We've got it here. And so Biden is saying, let's, you know, let's stop using public health laws and let's start, you know, let's reform our immigration laws. And Republicans are like, no, no, you got to use the public health laws. And if you don't, we're not going to pay for food that might stabilize other economies and prevent people from slipping into starvation. There are famines going on right now. And the Republicans are like, eh, so what? Chris Coons, the Democrat from Delaware, Delaware the senator, he said that this is a serious mistake. He said mass starvation is a real impending threat. Lindsey Graham, for God's sake. I mean, you know, occasionally Lindsey Graham says something rational, and he said, you know, these food shortages could trigger mass migrations and political destabilization across North Africa and the Middle East. Well, duh, 60% of Yemen's grain comes from Russia and Ukraine. Lebanon can only store a month's worth of grain right now because of, because of an attack on their silos in 2020 in Beirut. They haven't rebuilt their silos. Global wheat reserves, including in the United States, right now are running low, lower than normal literally every, all over the world because of global warming, because of changes in climate that are affecting the ability to grow wheat, which is the, you know, the world's staple crop, wheat, and then you know, that's followed by rice. So we need to do something about this. We need to deal with this. And we need to do it in a way that doesn't involve politics. Republicans saying, oh, no, we're not going to we're not going to vote for funding for world health or for world food because, uh, you know, uh, because of Title 42. Really? Anyhow, I often put things on your radar screen a year or two years before they become before they blow up in our faces. And I just wanted to put down that marker for you. So crazy alert, although there's a real serious aspect to this, because as a result of this, a lot of people died unnecessarily. But Fox News uh, it mentioned ivermectin 292 times since December of 2020, uh, you know, two years ago, uh, December 2020. 
292 times they mentioned ivermectin. The main shows that did it, the Ingram a angle with Laura Ingram, 62 times. Tucker Carlson tonight, 40 times. Hannity, 25 times. So they're all talking up how wonderful ivermectin is and, and trash-talking vaccines largely at the same time. Laura Ingram said there's enormous benefit from ivermectin. Sean Hannity said it's helping COVID-19 patients all across the country. Monday night, Stephen Miller was on Tucker Carlson's show, and he said, you know, for two years we were lectured, you can't give people hydroxychloroquine, you can't give them ivermectin. Like, you know, how dare they say such a thing? Of course these things work. Oh, aren't they wonderful? You know, essentially the, the implicit message. Well, last week, this study out of Brazil was published where they looked at thousands of people. It was randomized. It was double blind. They gave some people or some doctors, they gave them ivermectin pills and other doctors, they gave them sugar pills. And the doctors had no idea whether they were using ivermectin or sugar pills. They did it early in the infection, middle in the infection, later in the infection. They, you know, they tried this out. And what they found was that if you give ivermectin early in the infection, it increases your chances of dying because after all, it's a strain on your system. It's a pesticide. It's designed to kill parasites. Parasites are, are typically multicellular organisms. They are animals. You are taking an animal killing drug. So early on in the infection, it actually increased the rate at which people die. And later on in the infection, it had no effect whatsoever. But has Fox News even once mentioned this study that was published, you know, last week in, in, a, uh, in, a, in a real medical journal, this peer-reviewed study? The Wall Street Journal reported on March 18th, it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on March 30th. Has Fox mentioned it once? Well, according to MediaMatters.org, no, not once. You would think that these hosts would care enough about the people who watch them and who believe what they have to say, that they would tell them the truth about something that can kill them. I mean, I correct myself on little stuff, like, you know, I get a date wrong, you know, or a source wrong or something like that, and I come on the air and correct myself. I can't imagine what it must be like to be doing a talk show on a regular basis and talking to millions of people and misleading them. And then let's say that these folks all believed early on that ivermectin actually would cure COVID. At some point, the science became absolutely irrefutable that it does nothing. I mean, the CDC started saying this a year ago. And now we've got the first large, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study, the gold standard of science showing that ivermectin, if you take it early, will, will kill you more rapidly. And if you take it later, no effect at all, does nothing for COVID, nothing. And you would think that they would have enough humanity to go on the air and say, you know, we made a mistake. The hydroxychloroquine stuff, it doesn't work. The ivermectin stuff, it doesn't work. The vaccines, they do work. But at the moment I'm taking the word of the folks over at Media Matters because I don't watch Fox. <laughs> Enough to know. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So Deutsche Bank has just come out with the first forecast of a recession here in the United States, although Jamie Dimon has been saying for a little bit that he expects the same thing. But Deutsche Bank is saying that this is the first from a major bank, a growing concern that the Fed is going to hit the brakes on the economy so hard it will inadvertently end the recovery that just began about a year and a half ago. They're pointing out energy and food commodity prices have spiked since Russia invaded Ukraine. This is echoing through the economy, not just the food crisis that I was talking about, and they're predicting a mild recession. So let's talk about this with our buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, his most recent, The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, democracyatwork.info, the website, or rdwolf at 2fs.com, and profwolf on Twitter, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. So first of all, if you want to give us a, a little bit of a summary of why the Fed tries to deal with inflation by raising interest rates and what the consequences of that are, and how you think this is going to play out here. Okay, well, the basic economics of this uh, comes at least out of the 1930s, if not sooner. And the basic idea is if you have an inflation, prices rising, it's because employers figure they can get that money out of us, we'll pay more for the food, clothing, shelter, and so on. And so one way for the government to try to deal with it, if it's spinning out of control, as it is now, is to make us have less money. And how does the government do that? Raising interest rates. And the idea is, if you can't borrow from the government the way you used to, because you have to pay higher interest rates, if you're a bank or if you're an institution that deals with the government, if you have to pay the government higher interest rates, you in turn will charge higher interest rates to the individuals and the businesses that come to you. And in, in short, that will dissuade them. It's a kind of a disincentive to borrow, and that means less will be borrowed, therefore less will be spent, and therefore people thinking about raising prices won't do it or won't do it as much because they're becoming aware that people and businesses just don't have the borrowed money they used to have because interests have been raised. There are a lot of problems with this. It cannot work. It has in the past failed as often as it has succeeded, but that's the standard idea of why the government, and in this case, the Federal Reserve, is raising interest rates. So it seems like a blunt instrument, uh, uh, relatively Very. speaking, and arguably it's just increasing competition, in this case, increasing competition for the scarce resource of money, as opposed to uh, you know, breaking up giant monopolies and increasing competition by having a, a larger number of small businesses, which arguably could also reduce inflation, correct? Right. And it could also have, you know, it could be counterproductive. I'll give you an example that's happening right now. As interest rates are going up, so are mortgage rates. In other words, if you want to buy a house or an apartment these days, you're going to have to pay significantly higher interest rates uh, for your mortgage loan than you did 6, 12, or 18 months ago. But here's the irony. Is that slowing down the demand for housing? Not at all. It's having the opposite effect. It's driving the prices up faster. And the explanation is easy. As people 
people are informed by their banker that interest rates are rising because of the federal action, the banker says to the prospective home buyer, you better borrow now because if you don't, if you wait a few months, you're likely to be facing even higher interest rates. So we get then the peculiarity that the interest rate increase prompts even more spending, driving up prices. In other words, the opposite effect of what raising interest rates were intended to achieve. And that's not a unique thing happening now. That's a constant problem that this whole policy has to face the risk of not working and even making matters worse. So Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are arguing, among others, that some of the inflation we're seeing is just the result of a spike in demand, just like we saw after World War II, where, you know, you had food rationing and everything else there for years, and suddenly people could buy things and they rushed into the marketplace. That's happening now post-COVID. But a large part, they're alleging, of this inflation is also caused by the lack of competition, because when Reagan in 1983 told the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, and the Department of Justice to stop enforcing our nation's antitrust laws. We had this explosion of mergers and acquisitions, the M&A mania, the Michael Milken, the, the movie Wall Street, you know, greed is good, all this stuff. And that's still with us. And we don't have a single industry in the United States of any consequence any longer that's not dominated by a handful, you know, two, three, four at the most companies who control well over 80% of the market. So they operate as cartels. So if you could break those companies up, that would create competition that would be the most effective and most long-term effective solution to the problem of inflation. And Biden has given lip service to that, but the Fed apparently doesn't agree with this, or the Republicans won't go along with it, or the administration is afraid to take on these giant interests. Whatever the reason may be, that's not happening. And so they're trying to use, instead of using a scalpel, they're using basically a 10-pound sledgehammer. Well, let me comment a little bit on the many points, basically, that you're raising. When demand increases, as you put it, after World War II, people should not imagine that that necessarily means prices will go up. When demand increases, think of it this way. If there are more people that are about to come into your store, you have two ways of reacting if you're a business owner or operator. You can say, oh boy, I've got all these people coming in, I'm going to raise the price. Absolutely, free enterprise allows you to do that. But there's a second option, which is, oh boy, I've got a lot of people coming into the store, I'm going to order more merchandise and sell more of it to these people. I don't have to raise my prices, I will make more profit by moving more merchandise. In our system, we allow private enterprises to make that choice, even though they're a tiny minority and we, the majority, have to live with whichever choice they made, either the inflation, rising prices, or what we would much prefer, more product, because that would actually mean more jobs, and that would be the much better way to go. If Mr. Biden were serious, if the Democratic Party leadership were serious, they would be intervening to make sure that the response of business to more demand wasn't a rising price, which we don't want, but was a rising flow of goods produced and passed through to the customers who have uh, this greater demand. That's the first thing. The second thing is, Tom, let's take a step back. 
what are we doing in this economic system we're living in? We have just put our people, the mass, vast majority of our fellow Americans, through one of the worst public health disasters in our country's history, through one of the major economic crashes of our capitalist system, that's in 2020 and 2021. Now, in the latter part of 2021 and this first part of 2022, we hit them in the face with an inflation outrunning wages, and now Deutsche Bank, as you rightly foreground, is telling us, oh, wait, we got one more thing to hit you with, a depression or a recession, which is how we're going to deal with the inflation, which is how we dealt with, I mean, this is, you're, you're building, and I say this with all humility, you are building a, a reservoir of anger and bitterness and frankly, disappointment in our economic system that ought to have the folks at the top little less eager to squeeze more profit and a little bit more worry that they may be destroying the goose that laid the golden egg for them. Right. So there are a number of tools that could be used. One that I mentioned and I'm enthusiastic about is enforcing our antitrust laws. Another that Bernie is proposing is a windfall profits tax. And in order to identify windfall profits, you'd have to identify basically monopolistic behavior and the withholding of more goods and instead of just raising prices, as you just described. A third would be wage and price controls, which Richard Nixon tried in the 1970s. And my recollection was, is that it didn't work out that well. Or is there a fourth option that I'm missing? My preference would be a mixture of all of them. I mean, we don't have all that much experience. I was paying close attention back in 1971 when Richard Nixon imposed the wage price freeze. And for a good eight or nine months, it did the job. It brought down the inflation in this country from the double digits right down to near zero because it was harsh and it was strictly enforced. Now, many, many interests went to work, Republican, Democrat, and so on, to undo that wage price freeze, to open up the exemptions that had been written into it in the first place so that it could be undone. And they were ultimately successful, which I'm not surprised at. But I wouldn't draw from that that it couldn't be done if you had a government really committed to do it. And if you coupled some wage and price controls with some effort to make sure that the response to extra demand, if it's really there, is more goods production and jobs and not raising prices, I think you could begin to make some real change. And I would advocate also that a real leader, someone who uses the position of the presidency or the, the dominant political party that went out into the countryside and said, hey, the most effective quick way to prevent prices from going up is for people to say, if we see a price increase, we're going to go elsewhere. We're not going to buy those things. You know, the boycott is a powerful weapon, whatever else you might call it. Jawboning from a leader about this would go a long way to start the ball rolling to make a different economy. But again, let me underscore even if you 
reestablish competition. People have to understand that the way capitalism works, the competitors fight each other. One of them wins, and the loser usually goes bankrupt or fades away, and the workers in the losing enterprise then go and get a job in the one that won. In other words, make a long story short, Competition destroys itself and produces the oligopoly, that's the few big ones, or the monopoly. We've seen this over and over again as part of capitalism. So we may congratulate ourselves if we reintroduce some competition. But what we're doing is putting back in place the very system, the structure that brought us to the monopoly. There, there you go. Professor Wolf, thanks so much for dropping by. It's always great talking with you. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.